0: All right, so we've been going through our vision statement as a church the last couple weeks. This has been so important because the vision statement tells us where we're headed, who we are, what our DNA is as a church. You need to know because you're here. You're attending this church or you're watching online. And the Bible says that without a vision, the people perish. And so we've been diving into that. And just in case you're not aware of what the vision statement is, we'll put it on the screen. It's to turn broken people into relentless loving servants of Christ. That is what we're passionate about. God has called us to do broken people into relentless, loving servants of Christ. Last week, Pastor Darren focused in on one part of that, the relentless servant part. What does it look like to be relentless? Today, I'm going to focus in on what does it look like to be a loving servant of Christ. Now, before you check out and be like, boring, listen, this is really important because there are a whole lot of opinions out there about what love means in the world, right? Mm. It's pretty confusing, to be honest. So we're not even going to mess with that. We're going to go straight to the word of God to see what God says in his word about what it means to be a loving servant of Christ. So open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to see Paul describing exactly that. In fact, in verse 1, Paul lays out a list of sorts that makes up the goals that we have as loving servants. This is what we're shooting for. He's saying, at the end of the day, this is what we should see. Okay? So verse 1, everybody ready? Oh my goodness. Everybody ready? Come on now. Let's have some fun today. Verse one. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his what? Love. If any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, love those words. He says, then make my what? Joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love. There's that word again. Being one in spirit and one of mind sounds a lot like unity. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in what? Humility, Humility, key word. Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. So what is our goal as a loving servant of Christ? That's it right there. That's the kind of the list. I've summarized it for you. Number one, we should serve from love that produces joy, right? He says, if you have any comfort from his love, make my joy complete. Listen, there should be joy that comes from our love. This is like, if you're married, you know, husbands, you could probably relate. You could tell your wife, I love you, baby, all day long. But if she's like, I'm miserable, then you're not doing it right, (laughs) right? There should be some joy that comes from our love. Number two, we should be unified in our love for others. He says that we should be one in spirit and mind, which is why we have defined that we are relentless about helping broken people. How many know there is a whole lot of brokenness right here in our community? Just a whole lot including many of us. Nobody is exempt from this. And and we are unified about what God has called us to do to help those people, to not let them just stay in, in their brokenness and not just to have church and pretend like everything's perfect and let's just pretend and go home. And so if anybody were to come to our church and be like, you know what, I don't really care about broken people that much. I do want to get some good music and, you know, hear from the Bible and then I'm good. You're going to feel uncomfortable here because we have a vision to turn broken people. We're unified on this vision. Amen? Amen. Number three, we should serve with humility. With humility. Paul defines humility as always looking to the interests of others first. That's, that's the goal right there. We should have love. That produces joy. We should be unified. And all of this in the context of humility. And so we kind of want to ask, is there an example that we can look to? Has anybody modeled this well for us? And of course, whenever there's always like the cliche answer in church, the answer is Jesus. Yes, Jesus is the example. Everyone say Jesus. Jesus. In verse 5, he says, In your relationships with one another, Pikes Peak Christy Church, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Okay, well, what does that mean? Oh, right here, verse 6. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Stop right there. You know that he very well could have walked around and been like, you know what my name is? I'm the king of kings. You know who my father is? Respect me. But he didn't. What did he do instead? Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a what? Servant. And being found in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Even death on a cross, a brutal death. And because he humbled himself, look at verse 9, therefore God exalted him to the highest place. And gave him the name that is above every name. That at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and below the earth. Come on, that is amazing. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One more time, shout out the name Jesus. Jesus. He's the king. And that's what's going to happen. And he is our example. Jesus is the example. Again, we see humili- humility highlighted here as the key characteristic of a loving servant. Did you know that it is impossible to be loving and not be humble at the same time? Did you know that? You can't be prideful and tell your wife I love you and have her buy it. She's returning that right like, uh-uh. No, you don't. Is it It's impossible. God opposes the proud, but he also gives grace to the humble. He did that with Jesus. Jesus humbled himself out of love, and then God lifted him up. When you picture uh, the image of Jesus as a servant, you never see in your mind or or in Scripture, you never see Jesus standing there with arms folded, just with like arrogant body language, like, whatever, I guess I have to do this. You never see that. You never see him armchair quarterbacking, like sitting back, being like, man, y'all are doing it wrong. <laughs> I could do this better than you, but I, I don't feel like getting up. You never see him do that. What you do see is a picture of Jesus with his arms stretched out, nailed to a cross. Saying, forgive them, Father, <laughs> for they don't know what they're doing. Come on, could any of you say that with your arms nailed to Like, oh my gosh, forgive them? That's what he said? That's incredible. You see this image of Jesus on his knees, Washing his disciples' feet, becoming the lowest of the low, serving out of love. That's the picture that we get of Jesus. This is a beautiful thing. It's incredibly inspiring, right? And Jesus is the example. But when we look at the next verse, we see somewhat of a warning about the seriousness of the situation. Look at verse 12. Paul says, okay, so we have our goals and we have Jesus as the example, therefore... My dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, check this out, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Oh, that sounds kind of serious. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. The tone just kind of changed there. Something just happened. Something serious is happening. And so this idea of being a loving servant is not just a simple suggestion that Paul is making here. You know, it's not like a take it or leave it option. Like if you want to, or you feel like it, or, you know, whenever you get around to you might want to consider looking into serving somewhere, but whatever, you know, take your time. He's not saying that. He's saying the fear of God is involved here. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, this scripture that I just read has been misinterpreted by people over the decades and the centuries to really kind of create some bad situations. So to be clear, when he says work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he's not saying you can lose your salvation if you don't sign up to be an usher today. If you're not cleaning toilets, you aren't a Christian. He's not saying that. He's also not saying you can earn your salvation if you clean enough toilets. If you stack enough chairs, maybe God will let you into heaven. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is that there is an expectation that a holy God has for you to be a servant. And when God has an expectation for you, you better pay attention because he doesn't play around. He expects you to be a loving servant, and to not do it is to be in disobedience. And so if you're thinking to yourself this morning that serving is optional, I'm just gonna be real blunt. It's not. Not an option. God expects you to do it. But that's not the end of the message. In fact, it's just the beginning. Serving is really just the baseline of God's expectations for us. Like, it's, it's as low as the bar can get, okay? Like, if you're not serving, You're not really in the game. The bar is is right here. Serve. What God wants us to look at, and Paul is saying next, is our attitude. Can everyone say attitude? attitude? What is your attitude when you're serving? Look at verse 14. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. So that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without faith, where? In a warped and crooked generation. How many know that out in the world, everybody does this? Everybody grumbles, everybody argues about everything. They whine, they complain, blah, blah, blah. He's like, don't be like that. We're the church, we're Christians. Let's be different. He says, if you can do this, don't grumble, don't, don't argue, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. This is who we're called to be. As you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Obviously, Paul is saying to us, don't complain. Don't whine. But what does this have to do with serving? Because that's kind of the context of the letter here. This, How does this connect? Well, we know that we're supposed to serve. And many of us already do, which is great but Paul is focusing in on the condition of our hearts when we're serving. He's talking about our attitude. And if we're honest, just take a minute here, we could all probably think of some people who serve faithfully, but maybe aren't the most pleasant people to be around. Got somebody in mind? So, we don't want to be like that, amen? We don't want to be like her or him, whoever's in your mind. And Paul is clearly telling us not to be like that. Don't be like that. So before we start pointing fingers and getting a good laugh at others' expenses, we're going to do the reengage thing. We're going to draw a circle around ourselves and look at ourselves to see what may be at the root of why someone, including you and me, could turn into a Debbie Downer. Just a bummer of a person. What, like Those people exist. Negative Nelly. Like, ah, oh, you're such a drag. What could be the root cause? Because we're all susceptible to that. And what Paul is implying here when he tells us, don't grumble, don't argue, church, is that there's always going to be a temptation to do those things, always. You will always be tempted to grumble about something. And some of those temptations are going to look like this. Number one, the temptation to make excuses. That's a very real temptation. I have an excuse about why I can't serve or why I shouldn't serve. Right? I'm busy. I'm tired. My kids, work, blah, blah, blah. You, the, the list is endless. That's a temptation you need to be aware is coming at you every day of your life until you die. There will always be an excuse to make, or a temptation to make excuses. The second one is the temptation to have an ent- attitude of entitlement. An attitude of entitlement says, I deserve all the benefits with no effort on my part. Right? It should all just kind of magically happen. And if it doesn't, they're going to hear from me. It's time to get some complaining going. Let me get on the phone. Matter of fact, why don't I come on down to pastor's office and he's going to get peace of my mind. That's entitlement. There's a, a, a funny story of a kid. We had a long time ago, we had some kids spend the night at our house and, uh, we're having a good time, and we had dinner late. Like bedtime was this time, and we were late. We're still eating dinner a half hour after bedtime. And we're like, oh, my gosh, it's so late. Guys, everybody finish your dinner. Get ready for bed. We got to go. It's late. So they did, and uh, everybody ate a good dinner, and they went to go get PJs on and all that. So a couple minutes later, this little boy, he's like five, comes up to me, and he's like, Mr. Matt, can I have some food? I'm like, Oh, buddy, no, like, you just finished dinner and it's late. Your parents are going to be mad that I let you stay up this late. we got to go to bed. You just finished dinner. I'm sorry. Let's go to bed. And he looked at me like, but I'm hungry. <laughs> I was like, sorry, <laughs> go to bed. You know, I can tell, like, nobody says no to you very often, do they? <laughs> Mommy always gets, like, I'm hungry. Ah, feed me. That's an that's attitude of entitlement. And it's cute because he's five. But as an adult, not so cute, right? And hey, let's just be honest for a second. We live in America. Everything is spoon-fed to us. We're going to struggle with this attitude of entitlement. It's going to be a temptation you have to overcome daily so you don't turn into a grumbling attitude. Go (laughs) Go to bed. Number three, the temptation to have a victim attitude, A victim attitude. This says that everything is just too hard in my life. Everybody has it easy in the whole world except me. Nothing works out for me. Everybody's against me. Nobody supports me. And yeah, everybody else should serve, but obviously I am excused because I'm a victim. Right? We all know people like that, and we probably have been like that at some point or another you got to watch out. That's a temptation that will cause you to grumble and argue and complain about things and just be like everybody else in the world. And not be like what God has called us to be. Paul's warning us to be aware of falling for these temptations. Now listen, we can all check the box of serving in something. I'll sign up. Just put my name down. Check the box. But God wants our attitude to be joyful. There was no joy in those, other ex- in those other examples of entitlement and victim and I'm making, ex- there's just no, no joy in that. So verse 17, Paul says, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, he says what? I am glad, glad and rejoice. rejoice with all of you. He's doing it. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. There's joy in his serving. So assuming that you are serving, a question, a really important question is, how do you know you're serving in the right place? There should be joy. That's the answer. How do I know? I mean, do I just sign up wherever and I'll just do it and I'll just grind it out and be kind of a drag about it, or is there joy? There's a guy um, years ago who would serve in our children's ministry on Sundays. Every Sunday, faithful, just like always there, loyal to to do it. And I remember coming up to him one day and be like, hey, man, thank you for for serving in children's ministry. How's it going? And he looked at me like, I hate these kids. And I laughed just like you did because I thought he was joking. And he's like, "No, seriously, I cannot stand this." <laughs> and I was like, "Bro, what? Are you serious?" He's like, "Yeah." I'm like, "Why are you doing it then?" He's like, "Well, they said they need me, and it's important. And if I'm not here, nobody else is going to do it." Dude. How many know that there was just no joy in that? (laughs) Literally, he hated the kids. And you got to know that he he wasn't there to be loving. It was probably a little bit more about him, his sense of identity to be like, need to be needed. And so we have to ask ourselves some questions to check our hearts. When I am serving, is it just about me? Do I have to feel important by like stepping into this role? Is that why I'm doing it? Or or maybe somebody will finally listen to me if I show up and Because if it is just about you, then here's the news. You're going to be unsatisfied. It's not going to work out. You're going to grumble, you're going to argue, and you are going to be Debbie Downer. You're going to be Negative Nancy. But if you look to others before yourself, you will find great satisfaction. You'll find joy. Living for yourself leaves you unsatisfied. Everybody knows that's true and can testify. That is the way of the world. Me, me, me. I need some me time. If you live for yourself, you're going to be unsatisfied. But putting others first brings true joy. I was flipping through Netflix last night, and the number one movie on Netflix is Kevin Hart and Mark Wahlberg, and it's called Me Time. I didn't watch it. It actually looks terrible. You probably shouldn't watch it. I just thought it was interesting. Living for yourself leaves you unsatisfied. Putting others first brings true joy. Paul says, guys, if you can get this, if you can be a loving servant just like Jesus was, then I did not run or labor in vain. That's what he says. Why did he say that? In other words, he's saying, I'm not doing this just so I can check a box. And so I can write this really cool letter and people will think I'm a really amazing religious leader and they'll talk about how famous I was for, for hundreds and thousands of years to come. I'm not doing it to check a box. That would be laboring in vain. It'd be a waste of my time. I'm doing this. I'm telling you now so that when you stand before God on the day of judgment, then you will hear him say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Servant. That's why I'm writing this letter to you instead of God saying, hey, Debbie, that life you just lived, man, that was kind of a drag. (laughs) That was kind of a downer, Debbie. This is our goal, to aim for the well-done, good and faithful servant. There should be joy in your service. So just take a look. Take a look. Take a, uh, what's the word? Can't think of it. Is there any joy in your service? Paul says that he's poured out like a drink offering. Just poured out. And that could come off as sounding like grumbling. Right? That could sound like whining. Like, I am just so drained all the time. I'm so empty. I work so hard. Nobody works as hard as me. I'm just drained. I'm poured out like a drink offering. Ugh. But Paul is actually saying the complete opposite. Being poured out as a loving servant causes Paul to be glad and rejoice. And he invites us to be glad and rejoice too. How many know that there's a difference between being tired and negative and, and doing hard work that's joyful, yes. right? When your head goes to, hits the pillow at night, you fall asleep like this with a smile in your heart because it was hard work that was worth it, Thank you, Lord. right? That's joy instead of like <laughs> Debbie Downer. He invites us to be glad and rejoice too. I want to point out some people in our church that do this really well. There are many of you who model this well, but God put a couple on my heart uh, to to highlight today. I didn't ask them and they're in the room and their name is Jeremy and Dana Schaefer sitting right over here. Yeah, they're awesome. I'll tell you why they're awesome and then you can clap. Jeremy and Dana lead our Shine ministry here at church, which is a ministry to special needs families, kids of special needs in their families. And essentially we offer on Sunday mornings, like right now, the opportunity for people who have special needs kids to come to church and have their kids not only just like put in a room, but like taken care of, know that they're safe, specifically to their needs, and ministered to on their level, while mom and dad get to go to church. Which is like this massive deal for people with special needs kids. For those of us who don't have that, we're like, I do that all the time. What's the big t- it's a, They don't get to do that like ever because the kid sometimes will freak out and they gotta go and it's just not worth it to even come. So this is a huge ministry, again on Sunday and Wednesday nights that we've been offering because of Dana and Jeremy and here's what you need to know. They have three special needs children of their own and they're the best kids in the world, Max and Hunter and, Je- what? Josie. Josie, thank you. Cutest little kids ever. And when I say that their life as parents of special needs kids is hard, like, it doesn't do it justice. I mean, we're talking hard, high maintenance, 24-7, just to, be, just to keep people safe and alive type of thing. And so the fact that they're here Now pouring out and leading a group of people to have buddies and and reach other families in our community just so they can go to church is a big deal. And if anybody were justified in playing the I'm too tired card or the I'm too busy excuse, it's the Schaffers. Because guess what? They are. They're too busy and they're too tired. They're exhausted. But instead, they're poured out like a drink offering and they do it with joy. They come and Dana came in and shared with our staff about the ministry and how we can help and all the, all the things that they do with a smile on her face. She just came in the middle of her day just to bless us. Be like, this is what God's doing and we're growing. Uh, we've grown even more in the last couple of weeks and we're out of room and we're trying to figure out how we can use room to get more space to bless more people through our Shine ministry and they do it with joy. Isn't that incredible? Can we say thank you? You guys are awesome. I love that. That is so close to the heart of Jesus. And we are very passionate about that because that, that is a huge area of brokenness in our community, right? These are broken people that are like, can, can we even stay married? Let alone go to church. We're, of course we're not going to church. That is so close. We're turning broken people into relentless loving servants of Christ. Jesus taught about this in Matthew 16 when he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life, like, I just need some more me time. I'm too busy. I need some me time. I can't come. I need some me time. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, like get all the me time that you could possibly want? It's all about you. What good will it be if you gain all of that and forfeit your soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Listen, this is so key. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Did you know that? There is a reward on the table it's not just about Jesus died for my sins and I'm forgiven and I'm not going to hell and I'm going to heaven. Thank you, God. Until then, I don't know what I'm going to do. He's like, now show me. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I got some reward for you. I don't want to miss out on an ounce of God's reward for me, right? right. Amen? Amen? Like, th- if God has a reward, it's good. And I don't want to be sitting on the sidelines with God going like, dude, you left it on the table. He's coming. With a reward according to what you have done. Now, this whole business of laying your life down, dying to yourself, it's gonna feel counterintuitive. Your body, your mind is gonna reject it at first, just like instinct. It's counterintuitive, but I'm here to tell you there is true life in serving God and others before yourself. There is. That's the message of the kingdom of God. It's upside down compared to the kingdom of this world, but it is a powerful and life-giving thing. Amen? Amen. Amen. So we've talked about a couple different reasons why many of us don't get engaged. We sit on the sidelines. But we haven't talked about another one that's, a, that's the elephant in the room. Most of us deal with it, and it's called the spirit of disqualification. The spirit of Disqualification. This is a lie that says I'm too broken to serve. If you knew what I've done. Oh, we've all sinned. Yeah, but I've I like sinned. I'm disqualified. If you knew what my family's like, they everyone would think I'm a huge hypocrite for showing up to serve and say like I'm a Christian now and everybody in town knows what my family's like. I'm just I can't do that. I'm disqualified. That's the spirit of disqualification. And I'm here to tell you that it is not how good of a person that you are that qualifies you to serve in the kingdom. It is God's love and forgiveness that qualifies you. I'm going to say it again so the devil can't steal the seed that I'm planting in you. It is not how good of a person you are that qualifies you to serve in the kingdom of God. It is God's love and forgiveness that qualifies you. Thank you. Amen. Let it be done. So often I hear that. Oh, I can't because Jesus had this exact same thing happen in Luke chapter 7. He went to dinner at a Pharisee's house. If you don't know, a Pharisee, just I'll give you kind of a basic understanding of who a Pharisee was. They were the qualified ones. They're like the super spiritual, highest level religious leaders. They knew scripture. They always knew the right answer. They always did the right thing. Quote, they're qualified. So Jesus is at this dude's house. And all of a sudden, a woman who is known in town as like the worst of the worst sinners. Just bottom of the barrel, disgusting woman shows up and starts to kiss Jesus' feet. She starts to cry tears of joy on his feet and wipes them off with her hair. She is worshiping Jesus. She's providing a service of worship to the king of kings. She pours out perfume on his feet and just passionately gives her all in worship to the king. Now You would think that everybody in that moment would kind of step back and go, wow, Something is happening here, and this is beautiful. But instead, the qualified people in the room were like offended. What is this? Jesus, if you were a prophet, you would know that this woman is a sinner, and you would stop it. This is very inappropriate. Do you not know who I am? Don't you know my name? You should stop. This should not happen in my house. This is very undignified. Pride all over the place. Long story short, Jesus rebukes them, and he, sum, he finishes up his rebuke by saying this in Luke 7, verse 44. He says, he turns toward the woman, but he speaks to Simon, and he says, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't even give me any water for my feet, dude. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss. You didn't even greet me when I walked in. But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. As her great love, her worship has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. In other words, which one do you think is better, Simon? The qualified or the disqualified? Matter of fact, he's saying it was forgiveness that qualified her to love Jesus passionately, to offer a joyful service of worship to Jesus. She's like, I know what I've done. Even better, I know what you're doing for me, Jesus, and you have set me free from the tangles of death. Hallelujah, I don't care who's watching, I'm gonna praise you. Even if I'm an outcast, because she's forgiven. And it's easy to serve and worship when you've been forgiven, when you've experienced the love of Jesus. Turning back to ourselves now, maybe the reason that we struggle to serve or, or we grumble a lot is because we have some sin in our lives that needs to be forgiven, hey, and that's okay. Welcome to the club. We're all in that same boat. Maybe we have the spirit of disqualification that's holding us back from finally being a loving servant. And I wanna just tell you very plainly, you will never get there on your own. Never gonna happen. You will grind and grind and grind until you're a bitter old Debbie Downer, and you'll never experience the joy that God has for you on your own because he who is forgiven little loves little. And you have to love in order to serve. You can't give what you don't have. You need to be forgiven by the name that is above all names and his name is Jesus. I speak Jesus over you. Maybe some of us, we only come to church from time to time. And when we're here, it's like worship is just kind of a grind. You know, I'm happy to stand in line for the coffee because I don't have to sit through the first two songs. And when I'm in here, it's like... Maybe, maybe that's in our heart and there's, there's more to complain about than there is to be joyful about during worship. And I just want to tell you, that may be a sign that there's some sin that needs to be forgiven because whoever has been forgiven, little loves little. And that's not a judgment on you. It's a, it's a cry to join me and so many others who, who know what it is like to be truly free of sin and not have to strive and earn it and just feel like I have to come to church even though I hate coming to church. There is so much more to church than that. Amen? Come on, there's so much more to serving than that. And if there's not some evidence of joy when you worship or some evidence of joy when you serve God, Then something's wrong. And we need to get that corrected today. There is no time to waste.